how big is your butt? Now, that's not what I'm referring to, but back in 1992, when Eric and Will were both in diapers, there was a song that rocketed to the top of the music charts that talk about, talked about that very word, but it had a completely different connotation. It created quite a stir. It created criticism across the country. But over the years, the popular line of that song has been utilized in some rather humorous ways. Somebody tried to spiritualize it, and they said, I like big Bibles, and I cannot lie. Another person over at Hanover County Schools uh, posted, I like big snows, and I cannot lie. Or I like big mugs, and I cannot lie for all you coffee lovers. Or I like big mutts, and I cannot lie for all you dog lovers. And I like big books, and I cannot lie for all you readers. I like big boats, and I cannot lie for those of you who love fishing. But I have to tell you honestly, I like big butts, and I cannot lie. Not in the way Sir Mix-a-Lot talks about in his song, but the butts that I am drawn to are the ones in the Bible that talk about the hopeless, the discouraging, the impossible moments that took place in people's lives, but God. So for the next five weeks, we're going to consider some of the big butts in the Bible. We're not only going to look at the greatness of God, but at the way He has worked in people's lives and can work in ours because our lives can be but God kind of lives. Believing in a God who operates in spite of all that what takes place around us, however, can be really a challenge for us in so many circumstances, particularly when someone that we care for, somebody that we look up to, somebody that we respect, turns around and hurts us, especially those who are closest to us. And someone who experienced this kind of hurt was a man by the name of Joseph. And his story, which is one of my favorites in the Bible, is found in the book of Genesis chapters 37 through 50. Thirteen chapters long. And Joseph was one of 12 brothers. And he lived in a dysfunctional home. Because you see, Dad Jacob ended up playing favorites with him to the exclusion of his other brothers. And you, know, you and I know exactly what dysfunction can, can come as a result of that kind of favoritism treatment. The home, instead of being a safe place, instead of being a welcoming place, instead, instead of it being a haven, becomes a boiling cauldron ready to erupt at any moment with resentment, hurt, and anger. And the father, Jacob, facilitated that. And that is exactly what happened. If you grew up in church and, or, or, or loved musical or dramatic presentations, you know that Joseph was given a multicolored coat by his dad while his brothers got absolutely nothing. Joseph ended up living a cushy life within the tents of, of, the, of the community there. And he acted superior. He was clearly favored. But the brothers had to go take care of the sheep. They had to go out and be with the sheep for lengthy periods of time. And one day, Genesis chapter 37 tells us that the brothers had been out with their flocks some time and had not returned home yet. So dad ended up sending Joseph on a trip 
to go check on them and find out how they were doing. And that was the perfect moment because the brothers ganged up on Joseph as soon as he reached them. You see, Dad was nowhere to be found. He couldn't see what was going on. And their initial plan was to go, go ahead and kill Joseph because they had grown to hate him so much. But cooler heads prevailed, and Joseph was tied up and thrown into a well. And later, some traders came by, and rather than killing him, they sold Joseph into slavery. They took his multicolored coat, they tore it up, they ripped it up, they dipped it into some animal blood, and they took it back to their dad, and they said, hey, this is what we found alongside the road. And Jacob was left to assume that his favored son was now dead. And he grieved deeply. Meanwhile, Joseph was taken to Egypt unbeknownst to his family and sold as a slave to a man by the name of Potiphar who was the king's uh, chief bodyguard. And Joseph could have sulked at the unfairness of everything that was going on but Genesis chapter 39 t tells us instead that he excelled as his, at his duties as a slave. He impressed Potiphar so much that the man turned over all of his finances, all of his running of his business, all of his uh, people issues and different things like that. And Joseph basically handled all of that and did well with it. But there was somebody else in the household. There was Potiphar's wife. And she wanted Joseph to take care of her, but in a far more personal way. She wanted to have an affair with him. And yet Joseph refused. First of all, out of respect for his, for his owner, Potiphar, whom he, he cared for very deeply, but also out of his devotion to his God. And Potiphar's wife, in frustration, accused Joseph of rape of attempted rape, that is, and that accusation landed him in jail. You'd think that by this point, Joseph would just say, there is nothing that is going right in my life, and he could have become bitter and subdued. But this man distinguished himself so much in the jail that the warden of the jail put Joseph in charge of all those prisoners. And while serving these inmates, Joseph met a baker and a cupbearer for the king of Egypt, and they had each angered the king, and he had them jailed. But both of these men had dreams, and Joseph interpreted them for them. And as they left, Joseph asked them to please remember him as they left the jail and as they returned to the king, because he had been accused unfairly, and he had not, been, he had not done anything that, that, he was, that he was in jail for. And both of the men ended up going back to the king. And as Joseph had interpreted, as far as the dreams were concerned, the chief baker was executed. But the chief cupbearer was restored back to his position. And Genesis chapter 40, verse 23 says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. 
for two entire years. Joseph continued rotting in jail for something he hadn't done. And yet he continued to serve faithfully. The time came when Pharaoh ended up going to bed one night and he had a dream. And it was a very troubling dream. It was something that really disturbed him. And, and, and he, he got his advisors together and said, hey, this is the dream I had. Try to, try to figure it out for me. What does it mean? And none of the advisors could come up with a solution to that. So at that point, the chief cupbearer said, oh, me and my brain freezes, you know? And he told the pharaoh, the king, about a guy by the name of Joseph in jail who had interpreted dreams. And Pharaoh called him out and Joseph came to the court and Pharaoh told him the dream and Joseph interpreted it. And he said basically that in the land of Egypt, as well as other places, there were going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of very severe famine. And as Joseph was sharing that, he said, now, you need to go figure out somebody who can oversee a project and collect from the abundance so that there are are th are, are f there is food available later on so that you're able to go ahead and continue to provide for your people as well as for others. And Pharaoh said, hmm, you know about this. I'll put you in charge of it. And so this man was catapulted from being a prisoner to being the second in command of an already mighty nation that grew mightier and mightier under his influence. I mean, just think about that, folks. Overnight, his future was transformed. And he oversaw the project. But when you're a second in command, man, there's a lot of power with that, isn't it? A great chance to get some payback. A great chance to get even with Potiphar's wife who had gone to, gone to the trouble of accusing him unfairly. A great chance to get even with the cupbearer and give him payback for forgetting him for two years. And yet Joseph did none of that. He held on instead to God and he believed that there was something much more important that he wanted to accomplish he believed in a but God kind of God in a big way. You see, Joseph's but was really big. Because his God was bigger yet. And so I ask again, how big is your but? But I also ask you, how big is your God? Seven years of abundance hit Egypt. And Joseph saw to it that food was stored on a regular basis and, and, and there were supplies that were stockpiled. So much came in, and this was the day before computers were in existence, that Joseph lost track of how much was available. It was just totally impossible to see, to, to, to contain all of that and to figure it out. And then the famine hit. Seven long years 
So severe was this famine that it not only affected the land of the nation of Egypt, but all the surrounding nations as well, including the area where his dad and his brothers lived. So the brothers, the brothers went together and they traveled to Egypt to gather supplies because they knew that it was available there. But at, they didn't know what had taken place with Joseph. They had lost track of him. For all they knew, he was dead. For all they knew, he had probably been beaten senseless and killed by some, kind, some owner. And they found themselves in front of this man who was the second in command of all Egypt. And they were bowing in reverence to him, in honor of him. And that fulfilled the dream that Joseph, at age probably around 16, had probably told his brothers. He said, hey, I had a dream once. And I had a dream where I had a sheave of, of grain, and you all had sheaves of grain, and all of a sudden all your sheaves of grain got, got around me, and, they, and you, they bowed down to me. Now, what if your brother said, you're going to bow down to me? You'd probably slap him senseless, right? But here they were, years later, finding themselves bowing before their brother. And here they were, fulfilling that dream that Joseph had shared. The Bible goes on to record several interactions that take place with, with, between Joseph and his brothers. Uh, some of them rather odd to be real honest with you. Some of them were, were just very intense, and they created a tremendous amount of angst in, in the brothers. Uh, just a reminder of what it is that they had done and how, you know, they, 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 were, they, they dealt with guilt. But I suspect that some of the interactions, as weird as they were, were probably something that Joseph did because he was trying to work through all the emotions that had been piling up for a long, long time. When someone who hurts you deeply pops into your life after many, many years, folks, all the bottled up feelings rush back in an overwhelming way. And I wonder if Joseph was dealing with that. Because a time came when Joseph, in a very emotional moment, told his brothers who he really was. And tears and healing flowed at that time. And Joseph's entire family, including his father, were brought to Egypt and given prime land to raise their sheep simply because of Joseph's position. They were given safety and they were spared from certain death. And later on, after... Uh, Jacob, the father, had died, the brothers started worrying. I wonder if Joseph has been nice to us just because dad was alive. And he wanted to see dad. And that's all he was really interested in. Now it's payback time. And they repentantly went back to Joseph once again. And they said, hey, 
we're sorry, we, we love you, we, we are grateful for you and everything like that. And Joseph reassured them. In some of the last verses of the Bible, or of, of the book of Genesis, excuse me, in chapter 50, verses 20 and 21, say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You see, over the years, which were fairly close to 22 years from the time he was put into, uh, in, into, sold into slavery to the time that he met his brothers once again. Joseph had come to realize that God had used his personal hurts for something good. And that helped him come to terms with any negative emotions that he may have had. Joseph faced some very big buts in his life. People heard him repeatedly, and he, they hurt him deeply. But he followed and believed in a but God kind of God. A God who does impossible things. A God who is unstoppable in his ways. And who can do things even in the midst of our hurts that seem impossible for us to overcome. And so I want us to see three things very, very quickly out of this passage of Scripture from the example of Joseph. They're valuable lessons that if we apply to our lives can allow for us to focus on a but God kind of God. The first is be humble. Joseph undoubtedly had moments of discouragement, of questioning, even anger at what had been done to him. It was all so unfair. But rather than being caught up in that bitterness, I suspect that Joseph had moments of honesty and prayer to God, and then he got up and he chose to do his best for others regardless of his circumstance. Be it slavery, be it imprisonment, be it success, his focus was always on other people. Folks, listen to me. Humility is not being a doormat to anyone. It is instead choosing to serve God by serving others. Someone has rightly said that humility is not thinking less of yourselves, but it's thinking of yourself less. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 echo that when it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather than humility, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own interests, but each of you for the interests of others. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And my question to each of us is that when we are hurt by others, do we become bitter? Do we become defensive? Do we become angry? Or do we use those moments to become better? 
Do we reflect humility the way Jesus did? If you study Bible scholars, they will tell, tell you that Joseph is kind of like a, a type of Jesus. In other words, he, he, he gives us an example of what Jesus was really going to be like. And his attitude throughout all of these circumstances point to that in, po- in a powerful way. And my, qu- my question is to each of us, is do we point to Jesus in our humility? The second thing is not only humility, but the second is trust. That is trust that God is going to be able to work in spite of seemingly hopeless and evil circumstances. I look out here and there are probably hundreds of stories in this room alone of hurt. Things that are just so deep within your psyche. Some of you are struggling with bitterness that is almost uncontrollable. And yet, as believers in Jesus, we often say that we believe in the words of Romans 8.28 that says, and we know that all things works, uh, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And there's a disconnect there. Because deep down inside, what we want is for God to work things out now. Right? I mean, you get a you get to warm something up on the micro in the microwave and it takes a minute and a half, and you're looking at your watch and saying, come on, you can do faster than that. What's wrong with you? And you want a resolution to a a, a lifelong problem in movies (laughs) in less than two hours, please. When a lot of times it takes a lifetime. On the other hand, God works on his own timetable. Can I get an amen on that? And a lot of times we don't like that timetable. For Joseph, slavery and prison lasted close to 13 years. And he didn't face his brothers until nine years after that. And yet through it all, he maintained a deep, deep trust in God who had given him dreams, who had given him interpretations and opportunities in the midst of all that hurt and all that tragedy that he experienced. And you may be going through immense hurt right now. And if you are, I hope that you are connecting to God with God in prayer and you're openly sharing your angst, your hurt, your tears, which he stores in a bottle according to Scripture. And he holds them close to him because he cares for his own. But on top of that, I hope that you are connecting with somebody who is a believer in Jesus who can encourage you and who can pray with you. But ultimately, you need to ask yourself this question, and I need to ask myself this question, and that is, do I trust that God will work for and ultimately bring good even out of my deepest hurt.
It may not happen right here. It may take two, five, ten, twenty or more years, or it may not even happen in your lifetime or mine. we trust that God keeps his word, we're able to maintain our focus. And knowing that he is at work helps us to not become bitter or resentful. Folks, we serve an unstoppable God. He's got this. Third, forgive. And that's probably the most difficult one, isn't it? Someone has said that unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping that others will die. And when the hurt is deep and when it's intense, and someone inflicted a deep hurt, it is hard, very, very hard to forgive. Someone has also said forgiveness is an awesome concept unless you have someone you need to forgive. Sometimes it's easier to preach about it than it is to practice it. But forgiveness is the refusal to hold a hurt against someone It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you trust them like you did before because trust is built over the course of time and through repeated efforts, repentant efforts at many times. But it does mean, forgiveness does, that you don't hold a grudge against them for what they did or allow what that person did to control your emotions, to control your reactions, to control your behavior. Forgiveness is all about restoring a relationship, and Joseph did that with his brothers. He said to his brothers in Genesis 45, verses 5 through 7, Do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Folks, only a person who has forgiven could say that. And the amazing thing is that all of us have the same opportunity to do so because of what Jesus has done for us. He suffered pain. He suffered excruciating abuse. Because of our sins. And he took upon himself the punishment that we deserve in God's eyes so that we wouldn't have to. And when we believe in him as the Son of God and we surrender our lives at, to him as the only one who can take away our sin, he washes away all condemnation. And that's one of the reasons why we love baptism so much. We are dead to sin, but alive in Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Jesus calls us to model his forgiveness to others. 
That's why Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Your big but may be someone who hurt you. And some of you are thinking, yep, that's exactly what he or she is. But what I mean that you are allowing that person to be your barrier, your obstacle toward living a faith-filled life in a God who can do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. Your unforgiveness is choking the flow of God's Spirit in your life. And God wants to heal that. He asks you to simply forgive just as he has forgiven you. Because ultimately, nothing that has been done to you is as bad as what you did to Jesus on the cross. And God wants to use you in spite of your hurt, in spite of your pain, because he is a but God kind of God. Lord, Uh, you said that you will take us just as we are. We just sang about that and we heard those words and we praise you for that. But I thank you that just as you will take us as we are, you love us too much to leave us that way. You're the kind of God who who can help us to overcome even the most impossible things, the most impossible situations. And right now, I know just because we're people that there is unforgiveness in this room some of it which is deep, deep, deep deep-seated. I pray, God, that you will teach us to be humble, that you will teach us to trust in you, but that you will empower us and help us to forgive. just as you have forgiven us and just as you offer to forgive us if we will simply trust in Jesus as our Lord, our Savior, our soon-coming King.